we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, uh, it's about two-thirds of the way back. If you have an app, just look up Mark. Um, and or if you uh, haven't been with us since we started the Gospel of Mark, we have um, Mark journals that are just simply the Gospel of Mark with space to write or draw or create or that kind of stuff. And they're on the back table back there. would love uh, for you to take one of those and have it. And so you can kind of process through the Gospel of Mark with us during this series of teachings as we walk through Mark until about Easter or so. So uh, we're in Mark chapter 2. As you continue to find Mark 2, I want to ask you a question. I want you to answer it if you can. Um, What is the most important command in the entire Old Testament? What's the most important command in the Old Testament? Anyone know? There's like 613 of them. There's a lot. Yes. All right, there we go. Let's give her a hand. She sang it even. Yeah, so that is actually not a specific singular command in the Old Testament. Um, and so, in fact, several chapters later in Mark, all the way in Mark 12, which we won't get till until after Christmas, these religious leaders who we'll see over Mark don't really love what Jesus is doing, but these religious leaders ask Jesus that exact same question. What's the, what is the most important command in, in the Old Testament? They're challenging him. They're trying to see if he'll say one is more important than all the rest, and then they'll be able to accuse him of blasphemy, all of this kind of stuff. And Jesus summarizes... Basically, the entire law, God's entire law, um, in the, the lovely song that Ashley sang. He probably sang it as well, but it was in Hebrew, so it sounded different. Um, so it'll be up here on the screen. This is what Jesus said. He said that the most important command, the summary of everything in the Old Testament, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then in the next verse, he says, and the, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what he says in saying God is one, he says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He said God is, is unified. God is united. And I, and I want us to think about this for a sec. Um, if, you've, if you know anything about kind of the way Christians believe in God, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit mysterious. But we believe that there's Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons within one God Each of them play different roles within God's work. Each of them have a few different attributes, but they all function as one. They are all God. They are all fully God. They're unified. They're united. And that becomes the foundation for what Jesus says in verse 30 up here. Because heart, soul, mind, and strength are all different aspects of people. Is that fair? So so Father, Son, and Spirit, different aspects of God heart, soul, mind, and strength, different aspects of a person. They play different functions. They have different roles. They play different parts in our lives. They play different parts in our relationships with others, in our relationship with God. Is that fair? But which of those is most important to God, heart, soul, mind, or strength? Which one's more important than the rest? None of them are more important than the rest. All of them matter to God. If nothing else, who, who made our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength? God, who, who sustains us and, and shapes us and molds all of these, it's, it's God. God cares about all aspects of our lives. They're all valuable. They're all aspects of humanity that God created. And they're all united and unified for our ability to love the Lord our God and in the next verse to love our neighbors. Is that fair? So to say which is most important would be like someone asking me, which is my most important job as a dad? 
Is, is it most important to ensure like there's, there's food and, and uh, provision for my family? Or is it most important to help my kids mature, mature uh, make sure they're somewhat emotionally stable? They'll be in counseling for something, but you know, doing our best there. Um, or like make sure they actually go to school and learn. Is that most important or is the other one? Or is it most important to, to get them saved? Which, which is the most important? Like those are all valuable things, right? And I would submit they're all spiritual things. Heart, soul, mind, strength, those are all aspects of how God created my kids, so all of them matter. They're, they're all aspects of how God created us. God made our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. God wants to see heart, soul, mind, and strength all flourish. And so in Mark 2, Jesus is going to reframe the concept of restoration. It's a word we talk about a lot. It's the word the Bible talks about a lot. But Jesus is going to reframe the common concept of restoration in light of God's kingdom. He's going to say that God's view and hope and power for restoration is maybe more holistic than a lot of us think of. It was different for his original readers, hearers in first century Israel and Rome. It's different from how a lot of Christians think about restoration today. All right? So as you read these verses, Mark 2 and into chapter 3, uh, as you read, as you reflected this week, what, what stood out to you? Is there anything that, that you felt like God was teaching you or inviting you or inviting us into? I want to take time every week during the series to see what God put on your heart as you read. So what did God teach you this week? Yeah, faith, faith makes you, I like how you said that, faith makes you do things that look logically crazy to other people. That's good. Or we clam up and don't. Yeah, that's good. What else? Thanks, Michelle. What's, what else stood out to you as you read, reflected this week? Yeah, yeah. I maybe this is attributed. I read a lot of sarcasm into Jesus in this chapter. Like, oh, which is easier to do this or that? Oh, <laughs> look, I can do this. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of baller of Jesus to quote you. It's good. Anything else stand out? Yeah, that's good. Jesus does always answer these questions, but he answers, and just to, to repeat it, he answers in a way that, that gets to really the heart of, even if not what they're asking, the heart of why they're asking. That's good. One more, anything else? Oh, an arm wrestle.
Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. Even even the the if Adam and Eve followed Satan into saying yes, we will trust you over trusting God. What we saw in Jesus was not that. And then we're seeing some of his followers be so enamored with meeting the person of God that they're saying, yes, I'll, I'll give up everything and follow you. That's good. Cool. Well, there's, there's five kind of scenes within this, uh, this block of text that we're going to walk through, mostly Mark 2. We're going to get a little bit into Mark chapter 3 today. Um, and, and what I want to I draw out and I want us to consider is that in these scenes, Jesus pursues four different types of restoration that I think relate really closely to the heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to see Jesus pursue physical restoration heal a man, uh, heal a couple folks. Um, we're going to see Jesus pursue relational restoration, emotional restoration, and mental restoration. And, and then we're just going to zoom out in the final scene and see all of these, all of these are different forms of spiritual restoration. And, and maybe that, that challenges you a little bit, but I want to say, see that all of these things, if God really did create us and wants to see all of our life flourish for him, and if he's in the business of recreating a broken world, then all of these things are spiritual. But, but to help us see them as such, I want us to go to one other verse that I think will be a helpful starting point and give us some context. It'll be up here on the screen. This is in 2 Corinthians, where a couple of decades after Jesus died and rose, the apostle Paul wrote this. He said, in Christ, God was reconciling what? The world to himself. God was not counting our trespasses against us, but, but was entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, there's a lot of talk in, in current Christian circles about God redeeming or reconciling individual souls to God. Is that fair? Like, like if you think of, of most gospel presentations that you've heard, what is God in the business of doing? Maybe, maybe even some gospel presentations you've shared. What, what is the focus on? Heart, soul, mind, or strength? It's just the soul, okay? It's not not the soul. I don't want us to swing too far away from this, to be very clear, but why do we only talk about God saving our soul? And I want to claim that, that in, in a lot of ways, Christian religion has disconnected our faith in Jesus and the good news of the gospel from this life, such that its primary message, and the primary message that anyone knows, whether they're a believer or not, the primary message is that faith in the gospel is only good news for the next life. Is that too bold? Like, like, think about it. If, if Jesus, if what we hear is that Jesus primarily comes to save our souls, which just to, to go back to heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's only a quarter of the functions of our ability to love God and love neighbors, then, then the Christian message is only eternal. It's, it's only for the next life. Even some songs, if you think about some, some old hymns and, and newer songs, some of our songs show that our focus can be on eternal life. I'll fly away. Oh, glory, I'll fly, fly away. Basically, it's, I'm, I'm going to get out of here one day, which isn't what the Bible says. The, the scriptures tell us we're going to spend eternity here. Like God's going to restore and recreate. He's not going to destroy the world. He's going to recreate it to be what it was supposed to be. And that may seem like semantics. It may seem like we're splitting hairs, but, but I want to submit that it really, really matters. Because if our Christian hope is escape from this world, then that impacts our view of the world and of our life in this world and of the things we, we experience, and it's not hopeful. So last week we even saw in Mark 1 that, that Jesus came and inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth. 
And we said last week, if you weren't here, that, that in Christ, God didn't just put a new king here, but he also changed our kingdom priorities. He, he, he gave us a renew, the, the hope of a renewed creation. And so again, 2 Corinthians tells us that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He's reconciling all things. Everything he made, he's in the business of recreating. He cares about all of life. God wants to see everything that he created rightly restored to its place. Is that fair? Rightly under the reign of Jesus and his kingdom. And our role as his restored people is seen in 2 Corinthians as well. If you look at the next slide, it says that, if anyone is in Christ, we, we are new creations. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then what does he give us? He, he calls us and invites us into his mission, gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That make sense? Really foundational to get to Mark 2. If we want to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what he did, then a right view of God and our place in his mission of reconciliation is really vital. That's why this passage in 2 Corinthians is a helpful starting point in context for us. So let's go to Mark chapter 2. And for each of these scenes, I'm going to read it and then want to ask you what you see God restoring through Christ and why it matters as he enables us to love God and love neighbor with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. It's either back in town or this is literally his own house, some theologians think, that was going to be destroyed. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them, the good news of the kingdom to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they lay down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're not wrong. But immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What is God restoring through Jesus in this scene? He's at least restoring physical broken bodies. He's at least pursuing physical restoration. Jesus helped this man with a physical infirmity to be enabled to love God and neighbor with all of his strength. Like the guy's friends couldn't get to Jesus at the time. Roofs were, were flat. They were uh, just, just a bunch of pitch and tar kind of stuff, and they had cross beams with, with hay, we would say, and, and sticks and this kind of stuff. And so they started to dig, and the crowd beneath it has you know, stuff raining in on them. The, the, literal, the literal term says they unroofed the roof. 
That's just a cool way to say it. And then they asked Jesus, will you heal his what? Did they ask him to forgive sins? Did they ask him to, to fix his soul? And they said, will you heal our friend's broken body? And what did Jesus do? He did. Jesus values physical wholeness. Jesus values physical restoration. But how was that healing also spiritual? Yeah. Yeah, he said, which is easier to, to, to heal someone or to say your sins are forgiven? And, and he did both. He said, I'll heal your body, but I'll also heal something deeper that you didn't even ask for. He even says that, that he saw his friend's faith, right? The, the, these friends had faith that he could heal. Who didn't have faith? The scribes, the folks who had studied the law, who knew that a Messiah was going to. They didn't have faith, but he saw the friend's faith and healed. And people said, we've never seen anything like this. So then Mark continues. Verse 13, he went outside Again, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to Levi, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who had followed him. Pay attention to that. There are many tax collectors and sinners who had followed Jesus. Also, the term sinners means like there were tax collectors and also humans who followed Jesus because that's all of us. But the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors and said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What's God healing through Jesus in this scene? I want to submit that at least Jesus is pursuing relational restoration. He, he helped a man with the worst of the worst reputations who is known as an outcast, and he restored him to who? Restored him to community. Restored him to God. In this sense, he's helping Levi, enabling him to love God and neighbor with all of his soul. The tax collectors were, were known as traitors. They, they, they were natives who had essentially sold their souls to work for the enemy. They worked for Rome. They were expelled from the synagogue. They were, they were disallowed from giving testimony at trials. Like they were the, the scum of the earth. But rather than expelling him from God and the religious circles, what does Jesus do? He invites him in. He invites him back into true faith, into a relationship with God. He said, there's value in you, even though your soul has been sold to the enemy. And there's a lot of books that say that at our core, people are relational. There's a very obvious book called The Relational Soul, even, 
It says, without relationships, our souls wither and die. It's, again, it's, it's about being restored, our souls being restored to other humans. It's part of our humanity and about our souls being restored to God. And in a very real sense, Jesus invites Levi in to restore his rejected humanity and to reconcile his broken soul. How is this also spiritual, though? Jesus doesn't just invite him to dinner. He invites him into discipleship, right? Come, follow me, be with me. He invites him into God's very family. He'd been expelled, he'd been rejected. Now he becomes a son of God. And then Jesus even says, my focus is not going to be on those who find themselves self-righteous. Who did he come for? He came to save the sick, the broken, those far from God. I came to call sinners. Do you see how Jesus cares about what is seen and what is unseen? How he cares about the, the soul, the eternity, but he also cares about the present? He's pursuing this holistic restoration, and he is going to just continue right on doing the same. Verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to them, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then my disciples will fast in that day. What's God restoring through Jesus? At least he's pursuing emotional restoration. What's Jesus doing in this couple of verses? He's giving them freedom to grieve on one hand, and he's giving them freedom to feel deep joy on the other hand. So in other words, he's enabling them to love God and to love neighbor with all of their heart. What does Jesus give both his disciples and the Pharisees freedom to do, even if we don't like it, even if we want to reject it? He gives humans freedom to feel. It's right and good to fast, Jesus says. And, and we don't have time to do kind of a biblical theology of fasting. There's a lot of reasons people fast. The Pharisees, just because they were Pharisees, okay, it was part of their rule, part of their, part of their uh, employment package, um, they fasted two days a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. They fasted. No questions asked. Tradition, they do it. John's disciples, though, are fasting for a different reason. Why are they fasting? What's happened to this guy, John, so far in the Gospel of Mark? He's been killed. So they're fasting because they're deeply sad. You ever been so deeply grieved that the thought of food just made you want to throw up? They had no desire to eat. They're fasting out of their limit. They're fasting out of their grief. First century Israel rejected emotion and said, you can't trust it. It's not good. It's not holy. Is that, is that a message any of us have heard today in any circles, in, in, including 
religious and church circles. Just this past week in, in my work with Equipping Group, we hosted a workshop with a woman named Hannah Anderson, who's an author and a writer, um, and, and uh, she has a new book coming out on Advent, and she was ex- explaining kind of the heart of Advent and how we miss the heart of Advent. So something to think about as we head toward Advent this season. But, but one of the things she said is that, that even as, as Christians, we try to conjure up happy feelings at Christmas, but sometimes it's really hard. Have you experienced that? Even if you don't feel like you can say it out loud, like it just, between the busyness and chaos and, and money that's flying out the window and this kind of stuff, like, it, is it hard? Like, conjure up happy feelings at what we say should be like the happiest time of earth, happiest time of the year. Part of her claim is that we can't conjure up Christ, Christmas happiness because we ignore Advent. And if you've ever participated in Advent, or if you haven't even, it's, it's this season leading up to Christmas that's four weeks of longing and yearning and saying there are things are not right in the world. We need a Messiah. It was, it's echoing kind of 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and Jesus' coming. And, and some of Hannah's claim is that it should be a season of longing and lament that then, if we engage it, makes Christmas feel all the more glorious. Or if that seems off to you, maybe C.S. Lewis is helpful when he talks about Narnia and it being winter, 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 always winter, but never what? Never Christmas. Narnia was a deeply sad place. And so Jesus foreshadows his own death and and invites sadness. It it would have been utterly countercultural at the time to say it is allowed It is good. Like picture someone looking you in the eyes and saying, it is good and right to grieve. It is good and right to feel things. It's good and right to weep. It's okay to be sad. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be frustrated. There are things in this broken world that break God's heart. And for most of history, lament has been part of the faith of God's people. And so Jesus says, it's okay to be sad and to fast. He gives us a right view. He restores a right view of, quote, unquote, negative emotions. It's not a sin. It's godly even to feel and to fast. But the opposite is also true because he compares himself to a groom. You've been to a wedding. Is a wedding a a sad time or a happy time unless you wanted to marry the person who's getting married? (laughs) Like, it's not a time of fasting, right? It is the the utter time of feasting. And so as, as long as Jesus is with you, hear me on this, as long as Jesus is with you, and church, when is Jesus with us? Behold, I am with you always. As long as he's with us, We have access to true, lasting, deep joy that surpasses all of the circumstances we'll ever face. We have reasons to celebrate more than any other people in the world. Do, Do we look like it or does our joy rise and fall based on the people around us and the circumstances around us and the stuff around us? I'd ask you this this week to think about what is it that makes you kind of put on your proverbial sackcloth and ashes and fast and mourn? Is is it stuff that would break God's heart or is it stuff that you're just like, "Ah." because if it's stuff that breaks God's heart, that's allowed. Fast and mourn. 
Emotions are good and right. And also, Jesus is your source of lasting joy. Last vignette in chapter 2. Your, uh, your chapter probably doesn't break here, but the uh, chapter divisions were added later, and I think you'll see why. I think uh, starting in verse 21, it fits better with what's coming next. So starting in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. But if he does, because if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees started saying to him, look, you just give this picture like these naysayers are just following Jesus around going, what? no, that one, that one, that one. Um, it's like their Twitter followers. Um, why? Why are they doing this thing that is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did? That's like the ultimate insult, by the way, for folks whose entire job was to read and teach the Old Testament. Have you never read? You never read what Jesus did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time that Abiathar, the high, of Abiathar, the high priest, and how he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat? And how he also gave it to those who were with him. Have you never read that, guys? And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Was Jesus, what's God restoring through Jesus in this text? At least he's pursuing mental restoration. And here's what I mean by this. Jesus is reframing their theology. Jesus is reframing the way that people think about empty religious traditions. So in other words, he's enabling them to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Now, to be fair, these images are confusing. We don't use wineskins today. Maybe the easiest way to think about it, if you're super classy, is a box of wine. Okay, if you ever opened up a box of wine, there's the, the plastic thing in there. It's called a bladder, fun name. Um, it flexes, right, to hold the wine. Back then, though, it was like that, but just leather. And so over time, the bladder, the wineskin would get dry and crack. And, and Jesus' point is you couldn't just sew on a new patch because the wine would seep out through the, through the new seal. Similarly, what he's saying is you can't add a whole new message to your old religious traditions. To, to make it the most clear possible, you can't add, just stack on top of the law, a new gospel. You can't just make it all the old stuff, plus also we'll dabble in these other things. Polytheists do this a lot. Like, oh, you've got a new God over here? Might as well add that onto our gods just in case that one's the right one. Jesus says you can't do that. And so for all the religious traditions, he's saying, I'm not coming with something just to add to it, to sew on. It's not going to work. I'm coming with a whole new wineskin, a whole new way of thinking about God and about religion and about traditions. At the core, religion says, do good and God will love you. Think right and act right 
And it's our thinking that leads to our acting. And, and the religious leaders that he's talking to, they, they'd even taken God's law, some of you know this, and put like another layer, a concentric circle layer of rules around God's law so that you wouldn't, you wouldn't even come close to breaking God's law. And then they put another layer around those rules so you wouldn't come close to breaking those rules that might put you closer to breaking God's law. And this is what we call legalism. This is what we call empty religious tradition, but this is how people thought in that day. Jesus says no. He's redeeming their minds. He's restoring their minds. He's reconciling right truth. He's freeing people from legalism. He's freeing people from thinking and works-based religion. And so he, like David did before him, we're not going to get into the whole story. You can kind of follow exactly what happened in, in Jesus' words. But he, like David before him, broke one of the rules around God's law that these people had put in because he was hungry and needed food. How is that spiritual? How's the restoring of religious thinking, the, the restoration of our minds also spiritual? Here's the mental image that Jesus is giving, is that preserving life and nourishment of any form, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it may be, preserving life and nourishment is more important to God than a 24-hour Sabbath law. Life is more important to God than a number of hours. Religion, works, right action, Jesus says, that's not where righteousness comes from. And so he invites us to Sabbath. He doesn't do away with the Sabbath. He doesn't kill off our thinking toward the law. He invites us to rest, but he says, this is a gift from God. Rest, Sabbath, pausing, putting down your sickles or your iPhones, depending on if you were in Israel or today. It's a gift. It's a restorative thing. It's a wise practice, maybe, but it's not an oppressive rule. Jesus' way of restoring our minds is to say what you believe about religious works and religious actions matters. Are you hostage to the law? Because if so, Jesus is inviting you into a deeper union with God. Does all this make sense? Do you see what Jesus is doing in this chapter? He's displaying true kingdom restoration. He's not just focusing on restoring souls at the expense of seeing physical bodies restored. He's, he's not just caring about someone's mind at the expense of our soul either. And on and on. Through Christ, God is restoring the world to himself and everything he created in it. Jesus is pursuing holistic restoration. He's enabling people then and now to love God and love neighbor with all our hearts, all our souls, all our mind, and all our strength. And then all these aspects are just beautifully woven together and masterfully captured by Mark in the final verses we'll read today. Look at the beginning of Mark chapter 3. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. 
you know, just trolling him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, again, there's, there's physical infirmity. There's a lack of whole strength there. Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do harm or to do good, to save life or to kill? And again, he's, he's reframing the way that they think about God and religion. But they were silent. He trapped them. And he looked around at them with anger. Anger. Again, there's, there's emotional things that Jesus experienced. It must be okay for us to be angry at times. But he was grieved, another emotional word, at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, who we'll see in a few, in a few weeks, against him, plotting how to destroy him. He sees another man with another physical infirmity. And Jesus cares and restores his strength. But he does it in a way that, again, battles the way that folks thought about religion, works-based law, and he renews their minds. He says, this is a proper understanding of how you should think about the law. But he was grieved and he was angry primarily at, at what? The fact that they thought about things wrong? No, it was their hardness of hearts, heart, mind, strength. Jesus cares about all of them. All of them matter. All of them are spiritual. And again, to be clear, does Jesus also care about the man's soul in this scene? Yeah. His entire ministry was marked by, by, by Jesus focusing on God and on souls as well as hearts, mind, and strength. The, the point, the point that I hope we're drawing out is that there's a spiritual aspect to every kind of restoration. That there's not one thing that is spiritual and the other stuff isn't. That there's not one thing that God cares about and the rest of life God doesn't. That he wants you to flourish in this kind of ethereal, eternal sense, but doesn't care about the rest of life. And, and here's where I want to land. is to say that for some people, the route to a restored soul is easy. Like, just, you know some of these people. They just have great faith, and things just click for them. They don't question. They don't struggle. But for others, a route to see a soul restored is a lot longer and a lot harder. Is that fair? And for some people, they need some sort of physical restoration to open their eyes to, to their need for something more. For some people, they need to see some emotional or mental restoration first. And if our religion disconnects faith in Christ and the good news of the gospel from this life and the things that Jesus wants to restore, Jesus would come and look at us as his ministers of reconciliation and give us a bigger, better view and say that faith in the gospel is good news for eternal life. Let's not lose that, but it's also good news for this life also. And there's folks, I have to believe this, there's folks that Jesus wants to see their souls restored, that the way it's going to happen is through one of these other longer, harder paths. some people around us are open to ways that God offers healing. And some people are, are open to, to the way that God offers healing through us, because again, we're, we're part of this kingdom. We're part of the ministry of reconciliation. There's other people around us who are not open to it. 
The Pharisees were not open to it. The response to all that they saw, physical, relational, emotional, mental, spiritual restoration, what was their response to all of that? They went and plotted to kill Jesus. And you know what? They accomplished that goal. They did destroy Jesus in one sense. Is that fair? But Jesus didn't stay destroyed. And as a fully human on earth, stick with me, a little distraction happening now. But as a fully human man on earth, Jesus didn't physically, relationally, and emotionally heal everyone that he came in contact with. But he did offer spiritual restoration to everyone. Jesus can restore every heart, every soul, every mind, all strength for eternal life on earth, even if people don't see it in this life. So hear me, whatever you are facing, you can be made whole, whether this life or the next, in and through King Jesus. Is that good news? All right, let me pray for us. Father, as these kiddos come back, I thank you for the fact that you love them and you love their heart, souls, minds, and strengths, and you made their heart, souls, minds, and strengths, and you love us, and you want to see us flourish, and you made our whole hearts, souls, minds, and strengths as well. So God, I pray that you would meet us, even in this moment, as we're wrestling with various physical things, emotional things, mental things, soul-level things as well. Would you heal those things? Would you do that for your glory, for our joy? It's in your son's name. Amen. We're going to sing some songs here in a minute, but we're also going to respond in a couple different ways. One is uh, the, the, uh, the meal that's on your table. Um, so one of the things that Jesus said to his disciples, and that his disciples have repeated throughout the centuries, is that it is in his death and in his resurrection that God seals all these promises, that the promise and hope for holistic restoration is seen most clearly in Jesus' own physical, emotional mental and spiritual anguish with which he went to the cross for us. And so if you take the bread and dip it in the juice or the wine, what we get to say, what we get to declare is this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you, for your forgiveness, for your healing, for this life and for the next. If you believe that's good news, take and eat. And the other thing we're going to just give you some, some space to do around your tables, in your minds, with your mark journal, whatever it may be, uh, is just to spend a little bit of time praying. Um, perhaps you're walking through something physical and you would love for God to heal that thing, but maybe haven't had faith that God actually cares. Maybe you're walking through something emotional or uh, mental or on, on a soul level and you, you just haven't had the freedom to think that God would meet you in it. Um, so we just want to give you a little bit of space to go, hey, what is it that you would love for God to heal? Because what we just saw in Mark 2 is that God cares. And through Jesus, he is in the business of restoring the world and all that is within it and his people and all that is within us to himself. So feel free to ask others to pray for you and with you. Feel free to pray on your own. A couple of us will be in the back if you want to come and ask us for prayer as well. But then in a few minutes, we'll sing songs to the one that we believe heals and cares and knows. Cool?